It was the early 80s in Nottingham, England. Jane McCutcheon was preparing dinner. She placed her roast in the oven before wandering down the hall to check on the kids. Her two young girls were watching cartoons and giggling along. (laughs) The happy scene was contrasted by the haunting portrait that hung above the fireplace in front of them. It was of a young boy, about 11 years of age. He had blonde hair and wore a ragged, oversized shirt. There was a sadness behind his crystal blue eyes. Teardrops rolled down either side of his face. After seeing that the girls were settled, Jane returned to the kitchen. Only a few minutes had passed when her two-year-old daughter ran into the kitchen and tugged at her shirt. She pointed back to the lounge, trying to vocalize something. From the look in her eyes, Jane could tell that something was very wrong. She scooped up the little girl and raced down the hall. Smoke was billowing out of the living room. The lounge where the girls had just been was on fire. The ceiling, the Venetian blinds, the furniture. Within minutes, her home was an inferno. Jane grabbed her daughters and fled for safety just as firefighters arrived. As she passed some of the men, she heard one of them exclaim, Oh no, not another. He was referring to an item, the painting of the crying boy. Amidst the flames and the ashes, it was left unscathed. The boy remained clear as day. And it wasn't the first time the boy in the painting might have set fire to a house. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our one-part episode on the Crying Boy Paintings a series of portraits that were mass-produced and sold in department stores during the 1980s. The somber images of a crying child were connected to a number of house fires throughout the UK. It happened so often, in fact, that many began to wonder if there was more to the object than met the eye. We'll explore the stories behind those house fires and track down the mysterious artist behind the paintings, Then, we'll take a look at a few different theories behind the mystery. Perhaps this was just an example of mass hysteria, possibly a giant coincidence, or maybe the young boy in the painting was actually cursed. We've all heard stories about bad omens and superstitions, like how a broken mirror can lead to seven years of bad luck. An open umbrella can insult the home's guardian spirit. Stepping on a crack can break your mother's back. But it's unlikely you've heard that hanging a portrait of a young, crying boy 
can cause your house to catch on fire. In September 1985, The Sun magazine, a British tabloid, published a shocking article that caught the public's attention. The headline read, Blazing Curse of the Crying Boy. The story detailed the curious case of Ron and Mary Hall, an older couple living in Rotherham, England, about 80 miles east of Liverpool. They had purchased an inexpensive painting at a department store some months before. It was a medium-sized illustration of a young blonde boy with pale blue eyes and tears streaming down his face. But shortly after hanging the portrait of the crying boy, their kitchen went up in flames. The entire house was completely destroyed in the fire, and yet the crying boy remained perfectly intact, just waiting to be discovered in the ash. The Halls had lived in their home for over 27 years with no problems. Peter Hall, the homeowner's brother, was a firefighter in Rotherham, less than an hour away. Peter was one of many firefighters quoted in the sun, saying that he'd seen this happen more than once, including at Jane McCutcheon's home. All that remained was the haunting image of a young crying boy left pristine after a blaze, almost as if he had caused the damage himself. The day after the article's release, The Sun's editor, Kelvin McKenzie, was bombarded by phone calls. People rang from all over the UK, claiming that they too had been a victim of the portrait's curse. The story was much bigger than the journalist imagined. He cleared space in the next issue to publish their tales, each more horrifying than the last. A woman in Surrey claimed she lost her home to fire six months after she purchased one of the portraits. A kitchen fire in a pizza parlor in Norfolk destroyed an entire building. The crying boy portrait was the only thing that didn't turn to ash. Sandra Kasky and her sister-in-law each purchased a copy of the painting while shopping together outside of London. They each hung them in their respective homes, and both had a devastating fire shortly after. Kasky's sister-in-law even claimed that she had spotted the painting swaying on the wall days before the fire. To her, it seemed that the painting of The Crying Boy was possessed. Demonic possession became a theme with these calls, but as it turned out, some people found ways to counteract its evil. For instance, one person suggested that if you were kind to the portrait, it would be kind back. Others were convinced that they nullified the curse by pairing the painting of the boy with another piece called The Crying Girl. But that didn't matter to those who had already suffered from The Crying Boy's curse. Since most of the portraits were purchased from British department stores like Woolworth's, many paid little attention to the artist who made them. They only noted his pronounced signature, G. Bragolin. But after The Sun's article, people took to public records to find what they could. The story originally claimed that the portraits came from an Italian artist by the name of Giovanni Bragolin, who lived in England post-World War II. But researchers had a difficult time corroborating. They wondered if the name might be a pseudonym. 
And since no one was having luck finding the true identity of the artist, they turned their attention to the subject of the painting, the boy. Unfortunately, we don't have many details surrounding the claims that have been made, their legitimacy, or even who made them. But some believe the boy was an orphan who dealt with trauma in his childhood, trauma that manifested in the portrait and spread to its owners. Of course, many chalk the whole thing up to nothing more than an urban legend, due in part to lack of evidence. But for some, the lack of information was exactly what caused their sense of unease. They wanted to see the crying boy images destroyed and its bad luck put to rest. So, in October 1985, The Sun offered a solution. Editor Kelvin McKenzie made a formal announcement to readers. If you are worried about a crying boy picture hanging in your home, send it to us immediately. We will destroy it for you, and that should see the end of any curse. The Sun promised to collect all unwanted crying boy paintings. They would stage a sort of exorcism on Halloween night. They'd document the whole event and publish it as their spotlight piece. But then, more than 2,500 copies of The Crying Boy were sent to the paper's headquarters in London. People wanted them out of their homes, and Mackenzie was drowning in portraits. Though he himself wasn't particularly superstitious, something told him that they shouldn't be kept in the building much longer. Who knows what would happen? He wanted to burn them all on the roof of the London office, but the local fire departments wouldn't allow it. After all, the point was to avoid structural fires, not cause them. Once they couldn't use the roof, they found a new location, the city of Reading. They arrived right on schedule, just before nightfall on October 30th, and they documented everything as planned. The bonfire blazed into the night. Portrait after portrait was piled high to make a massive pyre. They stoked the whole thing with continuous gasoline to ensure it burnt. The sun captured everything on film. The next day, the headline read, Sun Nails Curse of the Weeping Boy for Good. But for whatever reason, the article never mentions how long it took for the allegedly magic artworks to burn. In the coming months, calls regarding the portrait slowed down. It appeared that the sun had finally put the commotion to rest. The story of the crying boy's curse became relegated to urban legend. But what about those who suffered, who lost their homes? Where was their explanation? The Sun certainly sensationalized the story, but they never provided an explanation. In fact, Mackenzie was even quoted saying, some stories are just too good to check. For many, a bonfire wasn't enough. They wanted the truth. Was it a coincidence or a curse? And of course, how had the crying boy always managed to survive? Coming up, we'll discover the truth behind the artist known as Bragolin and the subject of his portrait. 
It's my pleasure to inform you about a fantastic new ParCast original called Daily Quote. It's hosted by my good friend Kate Leonard, and it's designed to inspire you and put you on the path to positivity. Each day, this two to three minute podcast will share a quote that will motivate, uplift, and renew your outlook on life. You'll even get the specific context surrounding the quote so you can learn more about its origin and the meaning behind it. And right now, we're going to play you an episode. So take a listen and then follow Daily Quote free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Daily Quote, a ParCast original. I'm Kate Leonard. Today's quote is from the author Margaret Atwood in her short story collection, Moral Disorder. She writes, All that anxiety and anger, those dubious good intentions, those tangled lives, that blood. I can tell about it, or I can bury it. In the end, we'll all become stories. This quote comes at the end of a short story where a woman passes away in her home. The real estate agent becomes convinced that the house is haunted. When the previous owner's friend tells this story to the house's new buyers, they find it charming. To them, the alleged haunting and the story behind it adds character. In the end, it's these stories that live on after we die. The memories told by the people we touched. Each moment good or bad, adds texture to the narrative. Over time, even the painful experiences lose their sting, and you can see them for what they are, an indelible part of your life story. So instead of dwelling on the difficult times or trying to bury them, remember that every experience is part of what makes our lives unique. The past can't and shouldn't be forgotten. But the future is still a blank page. It's up to you to write the rest of your story. Daily Quote is a daily podcast. Follow on Spotify to make it part of your morning routine and let it inform the rest of your day. Daily Quote is a podcast original. If you're listening on Spotify, you can share this quote with your friends on social by tapping the three dots in the top right corner of the episode page, scrolling down to share, and selecting your sharing option of choice. If you're looking for a morning jumpstart, a midday pick-me-up, or evening inspiration, you can hear a new episode 365 days a year. Follow Daily Quote free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In 1985, the British tabloid The Sun ran a story about a popular portrait that was inextricably linked to a series of fires throughout the United Kingdom. People started to worry that the painting was haunted or cursed. The coincidence was disturbing. But some found the portrait's subject matter disturbing. A small young child with darkness in his eyes and two giant tears rolling down his cheeks. They wanted to know why anyone would buy it in the first place. More than 50,000 copies of the portrait titled The Crying Boy had been sold in UK department stores alone. 
The painting was sold at popular retailers like Woolworths. Young women and couples were some of the most common purchasers. Jane McCutcheon from Nottingham claims that she was hypnotized by the image of the boy. During an interview, she said that she fell in love with his expressive nature. McCutcheon didn't think twice about buying it. She had the perfect place to hang it, right above the fireplace in the family's lounge. Like Jane, many became attached to the boy's portrait, so much so that they couldn't bring themselves to part with it, even after rumors of its curse started to spread. At the Cube Gallery in London, director of exhibitions, Tim Marlowe, expressed his own theories on the painting's attraction. He believed that the little boy may remind people of the cycle of life, loss of innocence and the inevitability of death, themes known to influence art buyers. Many others, of course, credited the hypnotic nature of the image to something more supernatural. Which leads us to our first theory. The Crying Boy painting was cursed, and its mesmerizing appeal was a tactic used to rope in unwitting victims. Roy Vickery, the secretary of the Folklore Society in London, suggested that all these fires could be part of the child's way of getting revenge. But it wasn't just fires that people associated with the painting. Many claimed that they had experienced other strange and haunting occurrences as well. As we mentioned, Sandra Kasky's sister-in-law reported seeing the portrait sway side to side on the wall unprompted. One woman from Painton, England, claimed that her 11-year-old son caught his private parts on a hook shortly after purchasing the portrait. Although the hook was from a non-related object, she believed it had to have something to do with the portrait's curse. But what caused the curse? The theory didn't fully fall into place until the public knew more about the painting's backstory. In 1995, an English schoolteacher named George Mallory finally discovered more information on the enigmatic Italian artist known as Giovanni Bragolin. He found that Bragolin may have actually gone by several pseudonyms, like François Seville from Madrid or Bruno Amadio from Italy. He believed Amadio was likely the artist's real name. Amadio was said to be a classically trained painter who spent time in Venice after World War II restoring old paintings. During this time, Amadio released over 65 different works of art, all under the name Bragolin. Somewhere down the line, someone caught sight of his work and decided to reproduce the paintings for mass distribution. According to Mallory, as of 1970, Amadio was still painting in the city of Padua in northern Italy, but he only lived until September 22, 1981, at the same time the portraits started to grow popular. Amadio missed not only the success of his art, but any opportunity to speak up in defense of it. Then, in the year 2000, the Sun printed a follow-up piece on The Crying Boy, which included Amadio's backstory. It's unclear whether the story was verified by Mallory, or any scholar for that matter, or if the backstory was fabricated by the Sun in an effort to spark new interest. Either way, their tale went something like this. The little boy in the painting was an orphan that Amadio had met in Madrid around 1969. 
The child was always quiet and shy, with a painful look of sorrow in his eyes. After Amadio painted the orphan, he shared the work with a local priest. The priest recognized the boy as Don Bonillo, a runaway who had lost his parents in a devastating fire. This priest warned Amadio to stay away from the little boy. Wherever the child was, there would be fires without cause or reason. He was given the nickname Diablo by the people of Madrid. But the allegory doesn't end there. Supposedly, the painter went on to adopt the young boy. And at first, the boy actually seemed to bring him good luck. After the adoption, Amadio had an unprecedented streak of success in his career. But he wasn't riding high for long. One day, Amadio's studio caught fire, and the painter accused the boy of foul play. The child ran off and was never seen by the artist again. From here, Amadio's career took a dark turn. No one would hire him, and he became a local pariah. Perhaps this is the reason he changed his name and relocated in the years following. We don't know. But in 1976, just outside of Barcelona, a car exploded, killing a 19-year-old boy. His name? Don Bonillo. Ironically, the Diablo may have met his fate in a fiery crash. The Sun's article in 2000 gave a history that supported the idea of a curse. Whether it was true or not, paranormal investigators clung to the anecdote and used it to take their research to the next level. In 2010, Steve Punt, a comedian and self-proclaimed private investigator, decided it was time to put the curse theory to the test. Punt brought his own The Crying Boy portrait to Sir Ralph Harvey, a pagan exorcist and Wiccan high priest. And Harvey invited psychic medium Annie Mills to see the painting. Punt kept the portrait concealed in a large bag for the first half of their session. He wanted to see if they might receive any kind of energy from the portrait that would suggest a curse. The moment Punt walked in, Mills claimed that she sensed an immediate shift in the air. Then her hands began uncontrollably shaking. Mills then made a strange claim that the object was giving off a sense of impoverishment. There was a serious discomfort surrounding the piece. Punt showed the duo the portrait, and the two claimed they knew nothing of its backstory, which included the fires it caused. But Mills picked up on energy that told her the boy did not have a long life, and he might have died in a fire. Harvey told Punt that he believed the image could be exercised, meaning he was certain it possessed supernatural abilities. But there was one giant problem with the theory of the curse and its connection to Don Bonillo, the kid in the crying boy painting. Not all of the portraits were of the same child. In fact, Amadio actually painted an entire series with at least five known variations. And some of the portraits the Sun collected were from the painter's other series titled The Crying Girl. So there were different children, although it was easy to confuse one for another. Each child was under the age of 12 and seemed to be from an impoverished background with ragged, dirty clothes. 
and all expressed the same haunting sadness. But that means that Don Bonillo could have been any one of the children in the Crying Boy series. And if that were the case, his curse couldn't affect them all. More than likely, the son didn't want to call attention to the fact that there were different prints. If they had, their stories might not have sold as well. The mystery might have been written off. Which is probably why they didn't share another odd detail. Some of the prints weren't even from the same artist. A few were part of a series titled Childhood. They were painted by a Scottish artist named Anna Zinkaisen and originally printed as knockoffs of Amadio's popular series. So there wasn't just one portrait from one artist. There were multiple portraits from multiple artists, each one with a different subject and backstory, which makes it almost impossible to blame the curse on Don Benio, which means that, more likely than not, the portraits were never cursed. Instead, the son intentionally caused a paranoia outbreak. They misled the public in order to sell their tabloid, and paranormal activity sells. Which leads us to our next theory. Kelvin McKenzie, editor of The Sun, may have perpetuated a sociological phenomenon known as mass hysteria, and it spread like wildfire throughout Britain. The journalists at The Sun were happy to provide a platform for their paranoia. And then they laughed all the way to the bank. Coming up, our mass hysteria theory and how it compares to other historical curses. Now, back to the story. British tabloid The Sun first published a story about a cursed painting in 1985, but as more people called in with claims of fire, destruction, and death, even those working for the sun began to wonder if there actually was something supernatural going on. The editor, Kelvin McKenzie, was the person responsible for bringing the crying boy painting to England's attention. Rumors and public paranoia took off from there. McKenzie claimed he never believed in the curse himself. That being said, when an assistant tried to hang one in his office, he demanded it be removed. He called it bad luck. He didn't want it hanging, even in jest. Something convinced Kelvin McKenzie to believe the story that he helped create, that he knew was full of only partial truths. Which leads us to our next theory, that the crying boy painting, with the help of the sun, created a case of mass hysteria in the UK which was arguably more dangerous than any curse. In the 1980s, British tabloids like The Sun were reaching a daily circulation rate of nearly 5 million copies, millions more than they do today in the Internet age. And they had far more influence over people. The Sun's reach could have easily caused a collective obsession, and mass hysteria can be incredibly destructive. It causes deep irrational anxiety and fear, which can then feed into a public frenzy. It can cause rash emotional outbursts and widespread panic and fear. Take, for example, the Salem Witch Trials, which you might be familiar with. They led to the hanging of 20 women after a population became convinced that innocent people were practicing witchcraft and cursing their neighbors. 
or the less mainstream windshield pitting epidemic of 1954. Residents of nine different U.S. states started noticing unexplainable small holes and indents in their windshields. The tiny mystery created some pretty wild theories about what could be causing them. They included secret nuclear testing and acid bugs. As Dr. Gary Small reports, these cases usually die down once people are convinced they have not been cursed or afflicted. In the case of the crying boy, this happened once the cursed paintings were allegedly burned. There's no denying that the paranoia in this case was perpetuated by Kelvin McKenzie and the Sun. It is, after all, a tabloid magazine. They might not have known the reach their story would have, but they certainly knew what they were doing. In the mid-1980s, the Sun was in a heated battle with rival publications like the Daily Mirror. The crying boy story fell into editor McKenzie's lap at the perfect time. He was craving a hot story that would make waves, and he succeeded. The Sun was actually the first source to associate the painting with terms like jinx, fear, curse. But the truth was that most people who submitted their paintings to be burned never suffered any harm. It was a precautionary measure driven by irrational fear. But the power of the human mind should never be underestimated. When comedian and investigator Steve Punt arrived at the now-retired McKenzie's home in 2010 to do a follow-up on the story, he arrived with the portrait in tow. Even 25 years later, McKenzie still didn't want it in his home. He never experienced the first-hand effects of the curse himself, and he knew all of the holes in the story because he created them. Not to mention, Mackenzie and the Sun claimed they ended the curse. And still, Mackenzie managed to convince himself of his own lie. But in situations such as this, where paranoia reigns, our minds are capable of remarkable things. Exaggerating minor stimuli into massive freakouts, or even convincing us our bodies are under attack. Dr. Gary Small, a professor of psychiatry, has spent over 30 years studying the threats of mass hysteria, especially in relation to, quote, terrorist attacks, where the symptoms are irrational fear and panic. He uses the example of an unidentified popping sound at JFK Airport in 2016. The entire airport responded with fear and panic, worrying it was an attack. Ultimately, the sound came from something entirely inconsequential. But that level of paranoia can cause people to act in dangerous and irrational ways, like stampeding or overtaxing public services. The crying boy was no exception. Fire departments and other emergency services were called to deal with an irrational number of people trying to burn the painting on their own. But nobody paid much attention to these portraits before the sun planted the seed of fear in 1985. Prior to that, there hadn't been any speculation of a curse. Just a few firefighters who claimed they'd seen this portrait connected to a home fire more than once. So no, the crying boy likely wasn't cursed, but it did create a sort of public contagion. When you think about it, all the sun really managed to confirm was how many people in the UK actually owned the crying boy painting in one variety or another. 
50,000 copies of the pictures were sold, which explains the panic. But also, if they were in that many homes and they were cursed, statistically, there should have been more damage done. In almost every case, the fires could be tied back to carelessness. There were often frying pan fires, discarded cigarettes, or electrical problems in the building. Jane McCutcheon had her portrait hanging over an open fireplace. But there was one thing that the mass hysteria theory didn't explain. How have so many of these prints survived the fire when everything else in the home burned to a crisp? When the sun's story broke, firefighter Alan Wilkinson had put out more than 50 crying boy fires between the years 1975 and 1985. But Wilkinson claims he never believed the portrait was cursed. But even after 33 years in the department, he couldn't explain how it always seemed to escape scot-free. Once paranoia hit, dozens of people tried burning the paintings themselves, but they all reported the same thing. The portraits would not burn. A security guard at The Sun named Paul Collier was told to do a trial run before their bonfire in October of 85. Apparently, he had to let the portrait burn for over an hour before any damage occurred. The Sun's Halloween bonfire also lasted for hours before the portraits were destroyed. During Stephen Punt's 2010 Quest for Answers, he brought his copy of the painting to the Building Research Establishment, one of the world's leading science centers in Hertfordshire, England. Martin Shipp, the technical director of fire safety at the lab, helped Punt perform his experiment. Even a two-foot flame only created a small hole in the bottom corner of the painting, and the flames wouldn't spread. Shipp's assessment was that the painting was coated in some kind of fire retardant material or was created with fire retardant paint. When he applied heat to the string on the back, however, it dissolved right away. So the support would always be the first thing to collapse. That would cause the painting to fall from wherever it was being hung. And it's likely that it landed face down, protecting the image of the boy. So when you take these details into account, the portrait stood a better chance of withstanding a fire than most objects in a home. And perhaps the answer was just as simple as that. It appeared that all theories about the painting's ties to the supernatural could now be dismissed. The portraits were tucked away, sold, forgotten, or hung on walls without much care. All seemed to be quiet in the world of the crying boy. That was until July of 2010, when a new tabloid called The Star published their own headlines. The crying boy had struck again. A fire had overwhelmed another couple's home in the city of Rotherham, the exact town where the legend had begun. Stan Jones, the man who owned the home, said that he had purchased the painting for two pounds at a flea market nearly 10 years prior. But this wasn't the first time he lost his home to a fire. In fact, it was the third time. And the portrait outlasted the home every single time. So maybe we're wrong. Maybe there is more to the story. What we can say for sure is that there are plenty of prints still out there. 
a little boy with tears rolling down his pudgy cheeks and a deep sadness in his eyes, just waiting to claim his next victim. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>